So the first reading this week is from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 13. So the whole of Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. I will not, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree and instead of the briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Here in the reading. The next reading is Philippians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, and it's on pages 832 of your church Bible. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintichi to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. 
and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And Deb. Please keep your Bibles open at Philippians. If you haven't met, my name is Paul. I'm the pastor here. This is this is sermon number eight out of nine in the book of Philippians. Let's pray. Our, our God and Father, we we adore you and we praise you because you are holy, you are perfect, you are other. And we stand before you now as your children, adopted by your Son, our Saviour Christ. And we want to know what it really means to, to live with Jesus as our Lord. Uh, Father, we acknowledge that so many times we do fail you. And we don't want to remain ignorant about how you want us to live. So please, would you teach us tonight? And I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Just grab your newsletter and turn it to the back of the newsletter. Every week you're given these and at the bottom of that newsletter is our, our mission statement. Do you want to just read it out to me? What does it say at the bottom? Living for Jesus and loving like Jesus. I think that's a great mission statement because it's basically saying that our lives are all about Jesus. I'll say it again, our lives are all about Jesus. What we're saying there is that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has so radically changed us, both individually and as a church, that we're all about Jesus. What we're saying is that the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, has so grabbed hold of us that he has totally transformed us from the inside out. Our whole lives, our whole beings are all about Jesus. If you've never understood that phrase, the gospel, it's really very simple. The gospel is that Jesus was in very nature God, but he didn't consider that, that equality with God something to be grasped. So 2,000 years ago, he stepped into our world as a baby in Bethlehem. But he, he, he humbled himself even more. He humbled himself and went to the cross and died for you for the wrong things that you've done and the right thing that you failed to do. And Jesus bore on his shoulders the weight of your sin so that you can be forgiven. That is the gospel. And when you've understood that, when you've seen Jesus in all his humility, and when you've seen Jesus hanging on the cross, and when you've accepted that he's died for you, that should so radically change you. See, the gospel isn't just facts about things that happened 2,000 years ago. The gospel is a living event that happens in your heart. That you have met Jesus, he has met you, he's grabbed hold of you, and he's changing you. 
the gospel should sort of get you here in the guts. And the person of Christ should so radically transform you and change you that like our, our, our newsletter says, you are living for Jesus and loving like Jesus. Friends, we're near the end of Philippians, and this book is all about Jesus. Remember what Paul has said, chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ. Chapter 1, verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. And the question that we're going to grapple with tonight is the question that's raised in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, literally, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord. I'm about to tell you how you're going to stand firm in Jesus. So how do you make sure that the event that happened in your life when you first met Jesus is the event that, de- that determines your life all the way until you're taken home. How are you going to stand firm? I'm going to give you four marks of a church that is standing firm. Here's the first one. Relational harmony. Paul is saying, church, please, please treasure the relational richness that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings. Please learn to treasure the the relational richness, the harmony that the gospel of Jesus Christ will bring you. Because you are church, you are family. Do you notice how Paul described the Philippians in verse 1? Therefore, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, we've got the same heavenly father. We've all been bought by the same blood of Jesus. You whom I love and I long for, I care about you. You mean everything to me. You're my joy. You're my crown. You're you're here in my heart. You're you're my dear friends, my beloved ones. Have you got it? Let me just say as clear as I can, we are not just names on a database. We're not just a group of random individuals who happen to meet here on a Saturday night in the same building We are brothers and sisters in Christ. The blood of God's own Son, the sacrifice of our Savior, the the grace that God has lavished on us in Jesus, that's brought us together as one. Yes, we're selfish. Yes, we're so different from each other. But God has given us this harmony, this unity, this oneness in Jesus. And isn't that the beauty of God's church? That oneness that will be impossible without Jesus? What does Paul say down in chapter 4, verse 3? He talks about people whose names are in the book of life. If you put your trust in Jesus, your name is there. And if the person next to you has put their trust in Jesus, his or her name is there as well. And neither of you wrote your own name there. That name was written by the hand of a saviour with scar prints on his hand for you. And there's nothing quite so beautiful as, as the harmony and the unity and the oneness that the gospel brings. There's nothing quite so beautiful as a church living in harmony. But the flip side is, there's nothing quite so ugly 
as a church living in disharmony or disunity. You know, the, the fighting, the bickering, the conflict, the squabbling. You know that, you know that disunity cripples any organisation, don't you? You know, a sports team that just don't play well together because of fighting and squabbling. A, a workplace where they're just backbiting and bitching. It's an ugly place to be. But, you know, you, you kind of expect a bit of a fight at a footy game. You know, if you go to a footy game, you kind of expect a bit of crowd banter and disunity. But not in a church, surely. But to experience that kind of fighting, disunity, disharmony and bickering and rivalry in God's church, that is tragic because it's denying the basic gospel that's united us. And I believe God is saying tonight, Church by the Bridge, pursue relational harmony. You see, in Philippi, in this model church that Paul loved, there are two women who just can't get along. And the news of this falling out has reached Paul in jail in Rome. That's what happens, isn't it? You know, the disunity and the fights and the squabbles, that always travels much faster than the good news. But Paul names them in verse 2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintichi to agree with each other in the Lord. It's funny, Paul rarely mentions people by name. He rarely mentions people by name. And when he does, it's normally to commend them. But here, these two women, they're almost named and shamed. Why? Because of the damage to the gospel of Christ that disharmony brings. Let me read it again, verse 2. I plead with you, Odia, I plead with Sintichi to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It's extraordinary. These women once fought side by side for the gospel. Their names are in the book of life. They're Christians. Now, I don't imagine that this fighting is over a doctrinal issue. I imagine if it was, if it was doctrinal, Paul would have spent more time addressing it. I just think these two women just don't get along. I'm not told any details. Maybe it's rivalry, you know, the why was she chosen to lead that group and why is she the pastor's favourite and why does she always get to do morning tea and not me and, uh, and why does she spend all that money on, on this particular ministry and I don't get any money from my ministry and whatever it is that they're fighting, they don't get along. It's that petty squabbling, pathetic jealousy. I want you to imagine you Odia and Sintichi walking to church this Sunday morning when, when this letter was read. And they're kind of excited because, you know, Epaphroditus is here and they've heard he's back and they've heard there's a letter from Paul and they're sitting there and, and they greet each other at the door, these two women, and there's that, that fake sort of thin smile. And then they go and sit in different parts of the building. And then the letter's read and, and they're loving it. For me to live is Christ. Oh, yes, Lord, that's fantastic. Consider others better than yourselves. Oh, I hope the other person's hearing that. I want to know Christ. Oh, I want to know Christ, Lord. And I just imagine this, this shock as verse 2 is read. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintichi. 
shame. The apostle has publicly named them. And for all eternity, this is what these two women will be known for. That relational disharmony. Now, why would Paul do that? Why wouldn't Paul just take them aside quietly? Here's why. Because fighting, disunity, grudges, bickering, it undermines, it violates something incredibly precious. That is the unity that Christ has brought us. And Paul says in verse 1, I I plead. He's not commanding them. He's not saying stop it. He's saying, I plead with you. Come on, think about it. You know the gospel. The gospel is supposed to have reconciled you. I plead with you, agree with each other in the Lord. He's saying, have one mind in Jesus. He's not saying... Come on, ladies, you'll always think the same about everything. He's not saying, just bury the hatchet and just just gloss over all your doctrinal differences. Doctrine matters. He's saying, remember that you're one in Jesus. Agree with each other in the Lord. Remember that it's Jesus who has united you. You're part of the same family. So come on, let's have a bit of humility. Instead of thinking, this is my right and I'm not budging, start to think... How could I actually change things to actually bring honor to Christ here? But I hope you've noticed it's not just down to these two women. The whole church knows it's happening. And the whole church is impacted by it. And so the whole church has a responsibility to deal with it. Uh, Verse 3, yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow. We've no idea who this guy is. Obviously a leader or her. They know who she was or he was. We we don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is, help these women. They need your help. Come on, church. Assist them. Get alongside them. Give them some biblical wisdom, some counseling, maybe some mediation. Do whatever it takes, church, to restore that relational harmony. You see, I, I want this church to treasure the relational harmony the gospel brings. In any church, we're bound to have differences, we're bound to hurt each other and disappoint each other. The question is, how will you deal with that? Now, here's how not to deal with it. Please don't fire off a quick email in anger and make sure that you BCC somebody else in to make sure that they're on your side. Please don't gather your little group of supporters and play the victim and soak up the sympathy. Please don't act like a two-year-old from a temper tantrum. Please don't pretend you resolved it, but you haven't. And please don't refuse to hear words of correction. Here's what you do. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember that Christ has forgiven you and reconciled you and restored you. Please stop thinking self, 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 self. Please start thinking Jesus and his church. And please take Philippians 2 seriously. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Please learn to look at others. Maybe relegate your own personal ambitions and your rights for the good of the body. Because it matters. Disunity, disharmony, it damages God's church. 
How else are you going to stand firm in Jesus? Here's the second one. Find your joy in Jesus. The way you stand firm is to find your joy in Jesus. Verse 4 is such a famous verse, isn't it? Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. This is the 13th and 14th time that Paul has said, rejoice, be joyful, find your joy in Jesus. What I find extraordinary about verse 4 is that he commands you to be joyful. How can you command someone to be joyful? How can you command somebody who is just suffering this disappointment or had their hopes dashed? How can you command them to be joyful? How can you command somebody who is grieving or being persecuted or just stressed to be joyful? Here's how. By remembering that joy is not the same as happiness. I'll say it again. Happiness is based on what is happening. Joy is based on what Christ has done. Your happiness will depend on your circumstances. Your joy, that is your contentment, your security, your satisfaction, is based in Jesus. Look at it again, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. No exceptions. Whatever's happening, find your joy in Jesus. Look back to Calvary and go, I'm restored, I'm redeemed, I'm forgiven, I'm declared righteous, I have the Holy Spirit, and that's why I can be joyful. You see, something will happen to you this week. Something will happen to you next week or the week after that might just shake you. Every week, things will happen that will reveal where your true joy lies. And the tests, the trials, the everyday life, it will show you whether you've just got happiness or true joy in Jesus. And I don't know what this church will go through. Some of us here will face just simple disappointments. Simple disappointments like a frustration of a job or the year not going to plan. But others here might face severe Severe trials, debilitating depression, the pain of a divorce or a marriage breakdown, the disappointments of, of loneliness or a disease or death. And I hope during this time we'll cry together, we'll grieve together, we'll mourn together, we'll comfort each other, but that we'll continue to find our joy in, in Jesus. How do you do that? Verse 5 tells you it's linked to your gentleness and the fact that the Lord is near. Your reasonableness, your forbearance, and the fact that the Lord is near. I don't think the Lord is near is just saying that Jesus Christ is going to come back. He is saying that, but he's saying more than that. He's saying the Lord is near spatially. He's with you. The Prince of Peace is with you. Whatever it is, God is with you in this, so, so rejoice in the Lord. I do pray that for you, that your life would not just be superficial happiness, but deep, deep joy in Jesus. The third way you're going to stand firm is this, peaceful living. Let me read verses 6 and 7. I'm sure you could uh, quote them at me. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, 
which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm sure we can quote verses 6 and 7. We need to turn to these verses. We want a proof text for prayer. But these verses are not just about prayer. They're actually about peace. The peace of God. That security that God promised to give you that's going to guard you, it's going to protect you, it's going to garrison your heart and your minds, uh, that you can have the peace of God with you 24-7. Now please remember that, that when, when Paul wrote this, he's not sitting on a, on a beach sipping lattes. He's sitting in prison facing death. And the Philippian church are facing real things to worry about. Poverty, persecution, hardships, trouble, martyrdom. And yet Paul says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Nothing. How are you going to do that? How are you going to find your peace and not be anxious? The answer is really simple. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Get rid of your anxiety, all anxiety, and talk to God about everything. That's how you're going to stand firm, by being totally dependent on God in every situation. That you're prayerful about everything that happens. When anything happens to you during any time of the day, you take it to the Lord in prayer. And that kind of church, that kind of Christian, that prayerful, humble, stress-free, worry-free, get rid of anxiety-free, totally dependent on God kind of person. Isn't that what you want to be? That you can 24-7 experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. See, our, our society is, is built on anxiety. We've been described as the, the age of anxiety. <laughs> this global village that we live in, it invites us to worry about more things. We're, we're rightly worried about world issues. We're, we're rightly worried about world economy or the burdens of our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world. But, but so often, we're anxious about all these little tiny things in our life and the crazy things. The average person, here's some stats, the average person will worry about 40% of things that will never happen to them. You'll be anxious about 30% of things that happened in the past that you cannot change. Only 8% of things that you actually worry about are things that real problems that you will face. Now, when we slip into anxiety and prayerlessness, when we slip into, into worry and prayerlessness, what are we saying? We have a Heavenly Father who knows us, who loves us, who is sovereign who is good, who is all-powerful. Now, what are you saying when you don't bother to pray, but you just stress and stress and stress? You're really slipping into what I call a, a functional atheism. God, if you really were loving, then, then you wouldn't let me go through this. I'm not going to bother praying about this, God, because you're not really in control, are you? You, you can't change this. What should we do? Don't be anxious. 
But in everything, at every time, in every situation, by prayer, by petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Why is prayer so important? Prayer lifts your eyes off yourself and onto a heavenly Father who is all-powerful, who is all-loving, who is all-good. I'm not saying that God will necessarily give you what you want when you pray. But I am saying he'll give you what you need, and what you need is a peace of God which passes understanding. What you need is to know and experience the peace of God which will transform your heart and your mind. Why do you find it so easy to stress and so hard to pray? I think it's because we lead prayerless lives. We don't dwell on the character of God. Cast all your anxieties on him, 1 Peter 5, because he cares. God cares. The God who is all-powerful, all-loving, all-good, he cares for you. He has the power to change things, and he's offering to take the weight off your shoulders and onto his own shoulder. So when did you last pray about anything that you really worried about? When did you last take it to the Lord in prayer? When did you last take it to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving? Say, God, you you know this situation, you know this anxiety. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign. Thank you, Lord, that you're loving. Thank you that you're kind. Thank you that you're faithful. Thank you that nothing can separate me from Christ. Thank you that you are God. And thank you that I can leave all this worry onto your shoulders, knowing that you care. It's been said in any given day, in a matter of seconds, we can play out in our minds the worst case scenarios. To stop that and start to pray. Pursue that peaceful living that comes from saying no to anxiety and yes to prayer. Time with God, laying our burdens on the one who has control of things. That's how you stand firm, not shaken by the world, but utterly devoted to God in prayer. Lastly, Biblical thinking. Verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Ponder those things. Pursue those things. Let those things impact your mind. Because thinking is something you do every moment of every day. It impacts what you say. It impacts what you do. And your thinking and my thinking needs to be governed by the gospel, by the word of God. Look what he says in verse 8. Whatever is true, not half-truth, not false, but totally true, whatever is noble, not base, but, but morally excellent. Whatever is right. Not my perception of what is right, but what is truly right. Whatever is pure, not sleazy, but pure, holy, has integrity. Whatever is lovely, not disgusting, but pleasing and attractive to God. Whatever is admirable, 
commendable. Think about those things. Let your mind ponder on those things. Let me read verse 8 in the negative. Church by the bridge, whatever is untrue, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is wrong, whatever is impure, whatever is unlovely, whatever is uncommendable, church, think about those things. Now that would be tragic, wouldn't it? But yet that is how often we feed our minds. Think about these things. How do you do that? How do you learn to think like God thinks? How do you learn to love what God loves? How do you cultivate your mind to do that? It's pretty easy, isn't it? It's just the Word of God. If we want to be a church that is constantly having our minds renewed, we need to keep on thinking biblically. Get rid of the, of the trash of the world that fills our, our mind and replace it with the treasures of God's Word. Get rid of the trash replace it with the treasure of God's word. Now to do that, to think like this, we need to be discerning. Discerning about what you actually allow into your brain. What you watch, what you read, the conversations you have, how you start your day. Be discerning and please be biblically literate. I think we're living in an increasingly post-literate church world. Christians so rarely actually bother to open the word, and yet they want to think things that are right and pure and lovely. Read the scriptures, reread it, memorize it, dig into it, soak yourself in it, hide God's words in your heart, turn God's word over in your mind. I'm not talking about slotting bits of Bible into your life. You know, grabbing hold of a verse, oh, I like that verse, I'll slot that in for my work life, and I like that verse, I'll slot that in for my, for my relationship life, and I like that verse, I'll slot that in for my evangelism techniques. I'll pull out that verse when I need it. I'm talking about the scriptures actually governing your life. The scriptures feeding your mind in such a way that, that you know the word of God and, and the word of God just illuminates your mind in every situation. And I'm not talking about kind of knowing a verse. Oh, you know that verse somewhere that kind of says that God is good all the time. If you kind of know the Bible, your brains will be kind of impacted by the word. I'm talking about you knowing the word so well, soaking yourself in it, that you just start to think like God thinks. Because then you'll do what verse 9 says. Then you will put it into practice. Then you will practice truth and practice honor and practice purity and practice righteousness and practice loveliness. Don't be like those kids who who practice till they get it right once and think they've actually conquered something. Practice and practice and practice until you can't get it wrong. That's the kind of church you want to be where the mind of Christ our Savior lives in us day to day by his love and power controlling all that we do and all that we say. And here's the promise. And the God of peace will be with you. Do you see the contrast? Verse 7. You've got the peace of God in verse 7. 
And in verse 9, you've got the God of peace who's actually now living with you, dwelling with you, taking up residence in you by his spirit. Friends, we talk about living for Jesus and loving like Jesus. We talk about everything being governed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you pray you would stand firm in him. How are you going to do that? Pursue relational harmony. Find your joy in Jesus. Peaceful living, saying no to anxiety and saying yes to prayer. And just filling your mind with these glorious truths of the scriptures. Peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for your blood that was shed. Thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of your Son. Thank you, Father, for the victory that you won. Thank you for the unity you brought us, the peace you give us the joy that you give us. And Father, I pray that you'd help us, please, to have our minds renewed. Help us to think your thoughts after you. In Jesus' name.